here with us. I hope that you've been looking forward to our study. You may have been thinking, what can he possibly say from the book of Numbers? But I will say that as I prepared this lesson back in quarantine, uh, it was one that I was excited to preach because there is actually quite a bit of action, a lot of bit of uh, information that we find in the book of Numbers that uh, at least is interesting to me. And so today we begin a study of the book of Numbers. Uh, this will probably last us about three to four weeks, at my estimation. Um, and we'll try to go slow enough that, that uh, you can, can get everything at least uh, in a little bit, uh, little portions, I guess. Uh, not a deep study by any means, but uh, some interesting things that we do learn from the book of Numbers. As you know, this is a, a journey through the Bible that we are taking. And so we began with some of the basics about the Bible, and we eventually got into the book of Genesis. We've studied through Exodus. We've studied through Leviticus. And now we are ready for the book of Numbers. A lot of times, <clears throat> excuse me, whenever we get to reading through the Bible, a lot of people are okay with getting through Genesis, and they're okay with getting through Exodus. But usually whenever they get to the book of Leviticus, they start getting bogged down with the laws and trying to understand the law that God gave to His people, the ordinances that He gave, the specifics of those ordinances. And it seems that Leviticus is, is almost an ending point if we're trying, trying to study through the Bible. And it is unfortunate because we do have other books that have a lot of meaning. And Numbers is one of those. Uh, really, Numbers could do well. I, I understand the, the uh, Exodus into Leviticus because we're talking about law. God gave the law to Moses. And so Moses is giving the law to the people at the end of the book of Exodus and going into Leviticus. But we could almost go right from Exodus to Numbers because it's not but a very short time between those books and between the Exodus before we get into the events of Numbers. A question that we might begin with for today. Why is Numbers Numbers? You probably guess it's about numbers. There are two numberings of the men of war. One of those is in chapters 1 through 4. And then there is another numbering of the people in chapters 26 through 27. So we have two separate numberings of the people that is given in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers covers approximately 38 years of desert wanderings. It is a journey through the Bible that we are taking and I've tried at least in the last couple of lessons to give each of them a name based on the contents of the book. And so I've termed Numbers as a journey of promise. A journey of promise. It is a book of promise because during the wanderings before the Jews is the promise of reaching the land of rest, of reaching the land of Canaan. Remember that back in Genesis chapter 12 that God had made a promise unto Abraham. Abram at the time 
to leave his home. And if he did, if he obeyed God, he left to go to a land of which he did not know. And he ended up dwelling in the land, but not as living there. He dwelt there as a stranger. He dwelt in tents. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, I think, next week in next week's lesson. But God made the promise to Abraham that if he was obedient, that he would bless his descendants. Well, the people of Israel in numbers are Abraham's descendants. And so they had this promise before them that they are to receive this land of rest, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, a land of, of bountiful blessings if they are obedient. However, we know the story. We know that they were not obedient, that they were not completely faithful unto God. And though they are unable to attain the promise initially due to their lack of faithfulness, the promise of reaching the land is still before them. As I gave each of these books a name, I tried to keep them positive. But we could also term this as a book of failure in another respect because they failed to reach the land that God had promised them, at least in numbers. Now we know later on that there is going to be a generation that does inherit the promise that God has given. God is, is certainly faithful in keeping His promises, no matter what. Even when people are faithless, God is faithful. But the promise is still before them. It is still before their children and their children following that they should receive this land of promise. As we look at the book of Numbers as a whole, there are lessons to be learned. Because Israel refuses to go into the promised land of Canaan, they are forced to wander in the wilderness for nearly 40 years. In this time, they did not grow. They did not obtain the land. And they wasted 40 years of time. We can learn from that that likewise when we are without faith in God that we too will not grow. That we too will not obtain the promises of God. And that our time as it was with theirs our time in this life is wasted in aimless wanderings. It's important that we put our faith in God. Especially as I look forward to next week and what we study next week, we see that faith is an important thing in this book. As I have prepared these lessons, I have found that uh, even though I did not start with a theme in mind as far as the lesson was concerned, that with each sermon that, that I preach on these books, that I find a theme of some sort. And certainly I think that is a, a, an important theme of numbers, faith. 
We are only going to look at one point in the lesson for today uh, in four divisions that we have in the book of Numbers. But just to give you a brief outline and, and give you something to look forward to, today we're going to talk about preparations for the wilderness, the preparations that the people made. And we'll be looking at chapters 1 through 10 and verse 10. Chapters 1 through 10 and verse 10 of that chapter. And then we have a second division in looking at the wanderings that we'll look at next week, Lord willing. And that is chapter 10, beginning with verse 11 and going through chapter 21. Chapter 10, verse 11, going through 21. Then we have the third division, the Balaam incident, in ver or chapters 22 through 25. Chapters 22 through 25. And finally, we'll look at the preparation to enter Canaan that is made in chapters 26 through 36. And again, this is not a deep study. This is just hitting on highlights. And that's, that's all we're going to do. And that's okay. But we begin with the first point today in Numbers chapter 1. And if you would, turn with me to the book of Numbers. Most of our readings will come from the book of Numbers today. Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And we'll begin at chapter 1. And here we begin reading of preparations for the wilderness. The events of Numbers began approximately on the month after the completion of the tabernacle and about two years after the great exodus from Egypt. It begins with a command from God to number the people, namely the men of war. We'll see that in a moment. There are other censuses that have been taken in Scripture. And we read of those. We have the other uh, census that was made in Numbers chapters 26 and 27. We also have one that is found in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And this is David's census. And I want to spend just a moment just, just talking a little bit about David's census. Because David's census was different than that that we read of in Numbers. And the key difference between David's census and the census that we're reading about in Numbers is that David's census was not called for by God. His census was not called for by God. And a plague of pestilence was incurred upon the people for their disobedience, killing 70,000 men in three days, as we read in verse 15 of 2 Samuel chapter 24. So that's something that we need to remember in looking at the two censuses, is that one is positive, one is with God's blessing and command, and the other is not with God's blessing and command. And that's something for us to remember as we look at the census. The problem with David's census was not that the, the census in and of itself, it wasn't wrong to number the people. However, David was wrong in going over God, basically. He went beyond God's will in calling for a census rather than putting 
his faith in God and God's providence and God's leadership of the people. Instead of putting his faith in God, he called for a census. He wanted the number of the people. He wanted to know how many men of war he had. There was another census, a third census that we read of in Scripture that is of note. Joseph had taken Mary to Bethlehem from Nazareth to be registered in a census called for by Caesar Augustus in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The purpose of these censuses was often to take a number of the men of war, those who would fight in the need to go into battle. Basically, they wanted to know the odds most of the time. Whenever a census was called, it was to know the odds. If they were to be attacked by another nation, to know the odds that they would have against them. How many men do we have that can, can go to war in, in the case that we need them to? And that was the, the, the basic uh, meaning for a census in Scripture. Uh, it's interesting to note, too, that we are currently involved in a national census, not taking numbers for wartime necessarily, but to know how many are registered for each state to determine funding for schools and so forth. At least that's what, what they tell us, right? As well as to determine the number of seats a state is given for the House of Representatives. And so the census that we are undergoing in 2020 it is a little bit different, but it's basically the same thing. A numbering of the people. And that's exactly what we're reading of in the book of Numbers. Now, as we look at Numbers chapter 1, we read the command from God. This is the command that was given to them by God. Numbers chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their families, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male individually, from twenty years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel. You and Aaron shall number them by their armies, and with you there shall be a man from every tribe, each one the head of his father's house. There was the exception of one tribe in this census, the tribe of Levi. The priestly tribe was not included in the initial census in chapter 2 and verse 33 is where we read this. But they were numbered later by God's command in the later census. As we look at chapters 2 and 3, they deal with the encampment of the Israelites. The encampment of the Israelites. And we're not going to go into full detail about the encampment, but there are a couple of things that we can note from this encampment and from the command that was given by God. There was a particular order given to the twelve tribes and the placing of their encampment in relation to the tabernacle. One thing to note about the placement of their encampment in regard to the tabernacle is that Moses, Aaron, 
and Aaron's sons were given a special placement, camping before the entrance of the tabernacle. We read this in chapter 3, Numbers chapter 3 and verse 38. Moreover, those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east, before the tabernacle of meeting, were Moses, Aaron, and his sons, keeping charge of the sanctuary to meet the needs of the children of Israel. But the outsider who came near was to be put to death. It would seem that Moses, Aaron, and Aaron's sons were placed in a position of guardianship of the tabernacle. They would make sure that, that no one entered that wasn't supposed to be there. And especially we have this command for someone who is a stranger, an outsider, that if they came near, they were to be put to death. And so their encampment, their placement is before the entrance of the tabernacle. Another note that we might make about the encampment is that among the Levites, three families, three families were assigned special duties in regard to the tabernacle. And we read that beginning in chapter 3 and backing up to verse 17. In Numbers chapter 3, beginning with verse 17, these were the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And we'll read beginning with verse 23. The families of the Gershonites were to camp behind the tabernacle westward. And the leader of the father's house of the Gershonites was Eliasaph the son of Lael. The duties of the children of Gershon in the tabernacle of meeting included the tabernacle, the tent with its covering, the screen for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, the screen for the door of the court, the hangings of the court, which are around the tabernacle and the altar and their cords, according to all the work relating to them. Verse 27, from Kohath came the family of the Amramites, the family of the Isharites, the family of the Hebronites, and the family of the Uzielites. These were the families of the Kohathites. According to the number of all the males, from a month old and above, there were 8,600 keeping charge of the sanctuary. The families of the children of Kohath were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle and the leader of the father's house of the families of the Kohathites was Elizaphan, the son of Uziel. Their duty included the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the utensils of the sanctuary with which they ministered, the screen and all the work relating to them. In verse 32, And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, was to be chief over the leaders of the Levites, with oversight of those who kept charge of the sanctuary. From Merari came the family of the Mahal Mahalites and the family of the Mushites. 
These were the families of Merari. And those who were numbered according to the number of all the males from a month old and above were 6,200. The leader of the father's house of the families of Merari was Zuriel, the son of Abihel. These were to camp on the north side of the tabernacle. And the appointed duty of the children of Merari included the boards of the tabernacle, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, its utensils, all the work relating to them, and the pillars of the court all around, with their sockets, their pegs, and their cords. The one thing that I want you to notice from these verses, and the one thing that we should note, is that each family was given certain responsibilities in regard to the tabernacle. They were given certain responsibilities in the service. And they weren't all given the same responsibilities. They weren't all just in charge of doing all of it. But they were given certain responsibilities and it was according to the order that God gave them. But we also notice in these chapters the law of the Nazarite. The law of the Nazarite. And this is probably the most interesting thing that we'll talk about today. At least it was to me. You've probably heard of the law of the Nazarite. We know that there are a couple of individuals mentioned in Scripture as taking the vow of a Nazarite. Even if it's not uh, per se, such as in the case of John the Baptizer. We see that, that, that the description that is given of the vow that he made was the same as that of a Nazarite. But another individual that we notice in Judges chapter 13, verses 2 through 5, is Samson. And from his birth, he took upon himself the law, the vow of the Nazarite. And so as we look at the law of the Nazarite in Numbers chapter 6, we read that this is the only place in the Pentateuch between the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy in which the Nazarites are described. And this is really as much information as we have about them in Scripture. Numbers chapter 6 beginning with verse 1. Numbers 6 and verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. Verse 5 All the days of the vow of his separation no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother, for his brother 
or his sister when they die because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation he shall be holy to the Lord. The basic premise and, and the word that we read most here I think is holy. It was to be holy, separated for this particular purpose in God's service. The rest of chapter 6 details the offering of which they were to make and ways that they were to remain pure and consecrated to the Lord. And at the end of chapter 6, we read of the blessing of Aaron. Arguably one of the most famous and most remembered passages from the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 6, beginning with verse 22, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. <clears throat> the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put My name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. We use this often in closing remarks and, and certainly the words I think are true just as much for us as they were for the children of Israel even in this time. And though I, I could go on, I felt like this is the best closing point of the lesson. And so, these words I leave with you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. The only way for us to enjoy the blessings in this passage is for us to be in Christ. We know that in the New Testament that we are given the law that we are to follow, the old law being done away with, being completed, being fulfilled. And so we have a new law that is given. For those of us wishing to become Christians, Peter tells us exactly how to do that as he talks to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. When they asked the question, what shall we do? He said, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And so we follow that law today. And today, by faith, we are obedient in confessing our faith, in repenting, and being baptized for the remission of our sin. Maybe it is that you've obeyed this commandment, maybe you've become a Christian, but you've not walked in the ways of God. Maybe you've not continued in, his, in faithfulness to Him. And maybe you need to return. Maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to ask for prayer. 
Maybe you need help in some way. The Lord's invitation is always open. It, as far as we are concerned, always has been and always will be. As long as we have breath, as long as we have life on this earth, the invitation is open for us to respond to. And so I offer you today the Lord's invitation. The Lord's invitation to come. To put, put on Christ in baptism. To walk in faithfulness. To live faithfully until the very end. In which, if we have lived faithfully, we receive the crown of life. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we want you to do that. And we give you that opportunity as together we stand and as we stand.